if I've not met you before, my name is Frank Clooney. I'm the director of the center and a member of the faculty here, and I'm very happy to be our host tonight. Um, I would just like to, um, I, I don't get the privilege of introducing our distinguished guest, Professor Richard Grounds, but I'm very glad that he is here with us tonight, and um, we'll um, introduce him in a moment. But I'd just like to tell you something about the, the Greeley Lecture and um, Fellowship that we have. So the Dana McLean Greeley Lecture for Peace and Social Justice is an endowment fund uh, that has been given to the center a number of years ago. It supports both um, some student international travel and service in, um, in an international context around the world um, every summer, as well as this lecture series. So the international internship grants have taken our students in past summers to Jerusalem, to Jordan, for the organization called Seeds of Peace, uh, to Asha in New Delhi, a wonderful program for education and health in some of the poorest neighborhoods of New Delhi, to the Jezreel Valley Regional Project in Israel, which is a cooperative effort of, of Jews and Palestinian Muslims working together, and Christians too, on archaeological digs together. And, and that also has been supported by the Greeley um, funding. The Henry Martin Institute in Hyderabad in India, which is an interface center, and so on. So any of you who are MTS or MDiv students who are contemplating what to do next summer, the Greeley Fellowship may be something for you. But we've had a series of distinguished lecturers um, for the Peace and Social Justice Lecture. Uh, Thomas Halleck from Prague gave the first one about five or six years ago, a recent win winner of the Templeton Prize. Uh, Kieran Martin from the ASHA organization in New Delhi was here about four years ago. Marshall Gantz, one of our neighbors over at the Kennedy School of Government, talking about interfaith organizing in an urban setting from the ground up. Ibu Patel, the Interfaith Youth Corps founder, uh, was here maybe two years ago. Shanta Premwardena, the director for the Interreligious Dialogue and Cooperation Program at the World Council of Churches. And then last year, just a little over a year ago at this time, Atalia Omer from the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, talking about working with Jews and Muslims, Palestinians, in the context of Jerusalem today, and trying to bring people together to learn from one another. As I reflect on this gift, and I realize how much it opens up for us unique opportunities to have speakers who we w ordinarily would not have, um, to bring us not only peace and justice, but to bring us to parts of the world, uh, to situations, to cultural contexts, that open up very rich possibilities that I think benefit all of us at the Divinity School and here at the Center. So I think we're privileged tonight to have a, a wonderful new addition to this very distinguished uh, lecture series, uh, Dr. Richard Grounds. And I am not the one to introduce him, and I would like to turn over this honor to my colleague, Anne Browde, from the program Women's Study and Religion Program. Anne, would you come forward? Well, good evening. Um, well, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Richard Grounds. Um, I first met Richard when he came to teach at St. Olaf College back in a, another century, um, shortly after he finished his doctorate at Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, where he wrote a, a powerful and brilliant dissertation on how the naming of streets, municipalities, and public places enacted a dominant narrative of conquest 
rendering invisible and subject the indigenous ha inhabitants who lost to the Americans in the Seminole Wars. Um, he published an article based on the dissertation, Tallahassee, Osceola, and the Hermeneutics of American Place Names in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion in 2001. Um, he uh, came to speak in my classes. He crossed that wide river uh, to Carleton College and um, made a huge impression on the students when he explained what it was like to be a member of a group who had been repeatedly declared extinct by numerous scholars of numerous disciplines. A story he documented in his essay, Travels Up and Down the Academic Road to Disappearance, which eventually appeared in the volume he co-edited of essays in honor of Vine Deloria, Jr., Native Voices, American Indian Identity and Resistance, which a uh, book well known to students in issues in the study of Native American religions, um, published in 2003. After a few years at St. Olaf, um, Richard decided that the urgency of learning and preserving the language of his grandmother, the Yuchi language, a language down to a handful of native speakers, required his immediate return to Oklahoma where he became founder and director of the Uchi Language Project. While he continues to serve as a research professor in the Department of, Arche of Anthropology at the University of Oklahoma, his primary focus for the last 20 years has been language preservation as a student, teacher, activist, and advocate. He was co-convener of the Hemispheric Indigenous Conference, Our Living Languages, Our Living Cultures in Oklahoma City in 2002, and he co-chaired the Program uh, Council for Cultural Survival here in Cambridge, an organization, among other things, committed to indigenous language retention. Um, and he addressed the Permanent Forum of Indigenous Issues at the United Nations on the subject of indigenous languages. In 2013, the Oklahoma Humanities Council recognized Richard with the Humanities in Education Award for his achievements in revitalizing the Yuchi language. Um, he has, uh, language retention has now become a focus of scholarship for him, although I think that's now um, a vehicle for language retention rather than an end in itself. Um, and he has forthcoming from the University of Arizona Press a new volume in 2016 um, that he's edited entitled Native American Languages in Crisis, exploring the interface between academia, technology, and smaller native language communities. Uh, so it's really an enormous honor to welcome you here as our Greeley lecturer. Um, Richard will speak to us about reparations for Native American languages, churches, governments, and cultural genocide. Sound like a sota onto the Mechi Sandile. Abe Aga Sandle, go Anthony Weowa, Depole. Gala, um, Natswatswa. Gabby, Uncle Mwede, Abe, Natala, Abe, Zedo Shanley, Angelique Nechi, Sanlela, Kehon, Gala, Natswa Twa, Uncle Mwede, 
Tohina Gabby, Uncle Wede. Gohahani, Shehina Gabby, Uncle Wede. Gohahani, Oklahoma Hina Gabby, Uncle Wede. Gala Wahale has sat in. Get in with Lani Gabby, Uncle Wede. Natala. Ah, uh, Gala Sanle, Gabby, Uncle Wede. Onkaju. Ah, Ka Onkani, Sanle, Kayon Slate. Onkaju, a Kayon. Gala Kayon, Gabby, Uncle Wede. So I'm greeting you <coughs> in uh, the Yuchi language. Um, I'm. Uh, expressing to you that I'm very pleased to be here. And I'm um, acknowledging um, the importance of our conversation. And um, we'll be talking about our children, our elders, our future, um, very grave matters, and ultimately, um, these are religious concerns. These are family matters. These are about uh, our cultures, our lives together, and our lives separately. And um, so I wanted to uh, start with uh, greeting you in the Yuchi language because, um, you know, when we when we begin an exchange using the colonial language of English, there's already an imbalance. There's an inherent um, bias that's built into our discussion. And I felt it was important to begin with the language because, for one thing, um, our elders tell us that our language our indigenous languages were given by the Creator. And there's a, I would say there's a spirituality, there's a, a deep uh, significance to the way we speak, to how we speak. And at the same time, my efforts to speak to you in the language are unfortunately tinged by this enormous colonial machinery that's been rumbling around Indian country, smashing things for many, many generations. So, Dilaha, Siotola Yuja, Ele Se Uedeni, Abenchiha, Nedi Uede de Sanlela, Hido Netne, Agate Gile, Abenchiha, Watnani Hina. That lahina, sanle, hon't wait in eight day. So, um, my grandmother grew up, uh, didn't, didn't know English, grew up, I don't know, 20 miles away from downtown, um, maybe 25 miles from downtown Tulsa, Oklahoma, that became a big oil center and uh, significant uh, population center. Um, I just had the opportunity to work with um, language program 
running workshop up in Alaska in a small village, Igiagik, um, where they have four um, older speakers. Um, and the population of Alaska, I noticed, happens to be basically the same as the population of, of Tulsa. And uh, the number of speakers of our language, the Yuchi language, we have four uh, elderly ladies. The youngest speaker turned 90 a couple of months ago. So we're very aware of uh, a limited time frame to try to address um, our language concerns and, and get that knowledge, get the, the, the living expression of our culture, of our language uh, to younger generations and pass it forward. So I was wanting to um, start in the language in part as uh, one of our old, uh, old uh, dear elders uh, used, to, used to tell me, um, he always felt like, I guess, our, uh, the knowledge of our, our history and some of the ugly things that have happened to us, to our communities and our peoples, has been minimized, and he, he, wanted, he wanted the truth to come out. And uh, so uh, I, I hope to speak plainly, uh, but relatively briefly, about a range of interconnected uh, concerns. Um, the first thing that I want to, to really address, and uh, I think, um, I don't know who else is going to tell you this, I believe it's the truth. Um, the biggest crisis in Indian country right now is our indigenous languages and keeping them alive. The precarious status of our language um, is the result of uh, especially uh, the last century and a half uh, boarding school uh, process as the, the principal instrumentality to interrupt uh, our language uh, continuity, the transmission of, of our, our songs, our words, our stories. And um, the reason that I say that this is um, the largest crisis, the most significant crisis in Indian country is because it's our language that tells us who we are. It's through our languages that we carry through our ceremonies in their fullness that we're able to uh, fulfill our original instructions, that we can understand our original instructions. Um, our languages really are the key to our own identity. In short, our, our indigenous languages, our original languages, um, is how we know who we are. And all of the previous assaults, the cascades of colonial assaults on our, on our shores, on our lands, on our timber, um, the long and ugly genocidal histories of so-called removals, of uh, the dispossession of our peoples, um, through all of that, our communities 
figure out where they were in the world and how to situate themselves, even in, in, our, in our case, uh, it's commonly referred to as uh, uh, the Trail of Tears. Uh, our elders were brought, forced out in a very brutal, deadly process um, out of the old homelands in what became known as the southeast part of the United States. And um, as a result of that, uh, we were in a new place, a new land. We were dealing with a different environment. And yet, our elders knew who they were. And our youth spoke the language and they could understand their place and accommodate and adapt and somehow overcome all of the, the ugly uh, physical genocides. The brutal things that have happened ultimately didn't take away that last critical piece, the beating heart of our cultures, of our communities. Our languages were there to help us to understand how to move forward in our own terms, according to our own understanding. So that now, after, I mean, it's just amazing to me uh, that anyone has anyone left, that any of our communities have people left that, that speak their languages. The assault on our communities was so intensive, was so well-funded. There was funding to go to uh, to every, every tribal nation, every community, literally every home. I mean, they had the funds to go and grab the kids. Absolutely amazing stuff. Uh, and this was extended over generations so that um, the assault on our self-understanding um, was incredibly effective. It was very thorough. It was very, I mean, uh, it, it was devastating and continues to be a challenge. But yet, we still had our languages. And with all of those generations, now at last, for the great majority of our languages, for 80% of the languages in uh, what's now the United States and Canada, the, the only remaining first language speakers are the grandparents or great-grandparents. It's, it's really the World War II generation. So if you think about who you know from that, that generation, World War II generation, uh, those were the kids, the last, uh, for almost all of our communities, the last ones raised uh, speaking their original languages. Um, and yet, um, our indigenous languages represent, I think, an enormous uh, treasure to uh, our world heritage, to our uh, knowledge, to our uh, diversity and complexity and richness. 80% um, of the world's languages are carried by indigenous peoples around the globe. And at the same time, that's precisely the diversity that's at risk. Um, I would say that our languages are the key, our indigenous languages are the, are the key to, to unlock the, the um, untapped stores of indigenous knowledge as part of our, our world heritage. And I'm, I'm not real big on um, 
you know, kind of the defense of, of language diversity based on uh, what seems like something of a utilitarian argument that, you know, well, there's, there's things that elders know in languages because, um, you know, they speak their language, they have access to the medicinal knowledge, knowledge of plants that is not, uh, this knowledge doesn't exist anywhere else. And, um, you know, I think I think the important thing is, uh, to me, the bottom line is that that um, I, I just it's kind of simple for me. Um, with what our elders tell us, go chatla, go edine, go hantine, Our languages were given to us by the Creator, and that's part of the beauty. And um, <clears throat> I just wanted to point out. There's a growing studies about the correlation between um, linguist, an amazing correlation between linguistic diversity and biodiversity around the globe. Some of you may have seen some of that work. Um, so our communities in the past, up until this day, always had people who knew who they were carry on the ceremonies to maintain the traditions. Um, and there were ways to accommodate them. And yet, because of the assault, because of the series of assaults, this kind of cascading um, assault in our communities, um, unlike, I don't know, uh, we could refer to ethnic cleansing we could refer to other uh, systematic assaults on communities. Um, but it's as if there's not really an end. There's not really, there's kind of um, a lessening of pressure. And of course, ultimately, the big challenge is, the biggest challenge, really, in um, keeping alive our languages, restoring our communities, is the internalizing of those colonial mentalities. And I have to say that uh, the boarding school systems were an amazingly effective way to get at our communities. It was, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of surprising to me. I, there's things that, uh, there may be biologists in the room who understand the specifics of it. You know, how do wolves know where to attack? I mean, how do they know the juggler point? That's the weak spot. I, I don't know, but that's that's inbuilt. Maybe it has to do with the heat vision. I mean, honestly, I can't can't really uh, fully imagine it. But you know, uh, these old <laughs> the, the system that evolved really understood the weak point. Go for the kids. They're vulnerable. They can't defend themselves. They don't have a voice. They are the ones. We'll let the old people go. We're not going to worry about them. But if we're going to stop the songs, if we're going to stop the stories, if we're going to stop the dancing, we'll, we'll do it with the kids. And as you may know, if you've looked at some of the history of the boarding school system, you know they started out trying to provide an education uh, primarily through day schools. Uh, and a hundred years before uh, 
the indigenous population in what uh, became the United States uh, before they were granted citizenship in 1924, a hundred years before that, uh, the boarding school systems, there were 32 schools already going. Uh, by 1930, there were 50 schools. Uh, and then, of course, uh, eventually after the Civil War, it became um, clear that these day schools weren't doing the job. There was too much Indian left in these kids. And so, of course, the boarding school system um, evolved and uh, eventually, you know, over 500 schools all over Indian country. Um, and uh, this was an enormous process uh, and involved, of course, the uh, churches and uh, government dollars, church programs. Um, in a really, I mean, it, you know, it's it's something I think we we don't always um, understand the kind of ugliness of it, the frankly a brutal nature of it. Uh, I cannot imagine, you know, taking kids in in today's uh, from you know young parents who are very protective of their kids and their educational environment and their safety and you know uh, the kind of uh, punishment stuff that went on. I. You know, there's lots of stories, but um, I remember uh, one of my dad's first cousins uh, talking about, you know, up at Chiclaco boarding school, being a little girl, and um, her sister had been put in lockup without meal because she was talking Yuchi language, and, and she described, talked about, you know, with tears. This is, you know, four or five decades later, and through tears, she's talking, remembering reaching under the door, bringing food to her, sneaking out of the cafeteria, the food, and sliding it under the door, and, and holding hands with her sister. And these little girls are there sharing tears. Um, and decades later, still brought tears to even talk about that situation. I, you know, it's not important to, to uh, try to uh, stress the ugliness of it, but um, it was interesting that indigenous elders understood what the game was. We had an elder, um, Mos Kawi Shehina, who um, used to talk about how when the, the principal came to get him, he, he was raised by his grandmother. And of course, Ujihale Nase Wedete, she didn't speak any English. And uh, I guess Mose, as a little boy, understood you know, some English. And the principal came, and he didn't really know what was going on. And, she literally got out the broom and you know went after him and physically ran him off of the place um, of course uh, he kept coming back and he came back the principal came back and um, 
but I guess uh, what what the old lady understood was she she told her grandson um, he go hey when's a gantla waita you jago waitine now you and down waita he lay figale ne we waita. So yaha, and she understood. You know, she didn't read uh, newspapers, had no uh, command of English, but she understood, and she told him, "They're coming to get you, to take you away, to make you forget who you are, so that." You won't be Yuchi anymore. They're they they're coming uh, to make you forget your language. And um, I was always impressed with that story because you know this lady who had no really sophisticated uh, analysis of colonial dynamics. She knew the score and she knew what the game was. And uh, she tried to protect uh, her family as best as she could. Um, I had one quote I was going to pull out as an example. Um, this is from um, the Whitbeck study on historical trauma. Uh, and uh, this is in the upper Midwest when they begin uh, doing interviews around historical trauma and developing measures. and, and um, the social impacts of historical trauma. Uh, they found that foremost among the impact was the loss of language. And this is an example of what one of the um, participants said, um, <clears throat> talking about the, the boarding school catastrophe. Then one day a school teacher came and said that they had come to get me. They said, come with us and we will bring you back tomorrow. They tricked me so I would go along with them. It took me a whole year to learn English. All I talk now is English. Excuse me. I don't know how to speak Indian. When I was little, my mother and father didn't speak it to us because they were brought up in boarding schools. And when they went to boarding schools, they were forced to go. They were beaten for speaking their native language at boarding school. So they thought that we would be taken from home and forced to go to boarding school too. So they didn't want us to be brought up speaking our language and beaten if we talked our language. So they didn't teach it to us. So that's, you know, that's the kind of the basic pattern. Uh, those early generations like my grandmother who went to boarding school, she went later in her early teens so that she didn't lose her original language. So when she, uh, I don't know if she graduated, but anyway, when she cycled out, um, she continued to speak her language every day. She had her sister, she had her community, um, but they did get to her and she understood the problem of 
um, speaking your language. And so she would not allow my, my father to speak the language. He heard the language every day. He knew a few words, but really was really, un he had no competency in the language, uh, you know, and he, he heard it all the time. It was all around him, but he wasn't being engaged in the language. He wasn't a conversation partner. And um, so that, in effect, the boarding school system at the Uchi Mission Boarding School didn't really make her forget her language, but she enforced the rule for the next generation for her own kids. And of course, uh, our elders uh, were responding out of love. Um, and those are, you know, this is one level of the assault on our communities. The, the further background, of course, that I've referenced is the physical genocide um, that overlapped with some of the, the boarding school times as well. But um, I, w I remember being at a, a National Endowment for the Humanities uh, summer seminar on ethno-history, and um, this was a number of years ago, but I was wanting to raise this issue of, of genocide, physical genocide against indigenous populations here uh, in the United States. And I was completely cut off from the conversation. The professor le <laughs> leading the workshop just was apparently completely scandalized at, you know, even the, the prospect of discussing this and um, that somehow it, you know, was inappropriate and couldn't possibly be. I had a bunch of numbers. I wanted to crunch the numbers. Let's talk about who was killing whom uh, during the, you know, so-called frontier days. And um, so we had kind of a, a hoopla around the room trying to, you know, everybody was uh, a bit uh, dramatic. And, uh, one uh, of the colleagues in the seminar um, spoke up in defense of the issue. She was an anthropologist from California. And she said, well, it really is true because, um, you know, in California, the genocide ran really late. And um, into the 20th century, uh, you know, this is the story of Ishii and family as kind of some of the um, known expressions of it, and um, what she uh, described was that the reason that the California languages are down to just handfuls of speakers, a hundred languages, when the uh, uh, American period began, uh, dropped to 50, uh, but of those 50, just, had, you know, as in two, three, five, eight speakers, of their, of their language, original speakers. Um, but what she said was the reason the language wasn't passed on was precisely because the parents and grandparents that had survived the genocide didn't want their kids to be singled out to also be killed. Uh, and it was, it was that direct of a correlation uh, in the understanding of, of the community as she described it. Uh, so the impact today is 
um, there's a great deal of shame amongst our leaders at various levels, um, our community, uh, even in our, our ceremonial ways, for our communities where we're where we're getting past the last the generation of fluent speakers, as I'm saying, is World War II folk, right? So if you're going to conduct your ceremonies in a full way in the languages, then um, we don't necessarily always have those people in, in line. Um, and in our community, uh, as we say, we now have four wonderful elderly, elderly ladies. Uh, the youngest that turned 90 had a heart surgical procedure two months ago. Um, so that I think, if I can say this in a, in a public forum, I think that um, the kind of at least failure to pick up on the issue and address it in a very explicit and effective way on the part of leadership is really connected to the shame around not knowing the language. And it, and it started really with the generation before the generation that uh, essentially were compelled to stop passing the language on, uh, and yet they feel ashamed now uh, that they didn't, you know, speak it to their kids. Um, and even today, really, um, <clears throat> you know, when we run into occasionally, we have some pretty active elders. Occasionally, when we run into um, an elder in the grocery store or something. Uh, of course, us, uh, those of us who are younger learners want to be able to use our language. We're very proud and, you know, so we may try to speak to them in the store. We get Nawanji, we get Yawage. You know, just interact with them a little bit in the language. What are you looking for? What are you gonna buy? Something that would be a typical uh, interaction. And, you know, they're still embarrassed. They still don't really wanna answer back in the language uh, because they've lived their whole life, you know, dealing with the dealing with that the, that shame. So there's a so there's a real uh, internalized issue around getting effective um, community engagement on the language issue, so that people are so ashamed. There's a certain paralysis I think that goes with that, um, and as I'm saying, um, uh, I really do believe this is the biggest issue in Indian country. I don't want to offend the wonderful work that's being done by a lot of the uh, indigenous leadership in, in national and international fora, but by and large, this is an issue that gets kind of lip service, I would say. Um, and and part of it, I think, goes may, may in fact also go to the fact that, you know, our um, wonderful uh, legally trained and you know the, the, the old radical guard um, by and large don't they're not speakers of the language they are folk who've been cut out of that and so that's part of the part of the challenge is to uh, deal with uh, the brokenness as a result of this enormous assault on our communities 
oh, in this really unfair way of you know, going after the kids. And, and that's really what it's still about, is ultimately getting the language uh, to the kids. Um, and you know, I love the old rads, a lot of important work, a lot of good work. But I have to say, I really, I really think the most radical thing I can do is sit down with 94-year-old Veda, Tiger, and Joe Kenyuchi and try to get some more words, get some more knowledge, um, get her to share um, her experience as a person embodying our uh, traditional way of life. And we're gifted to have her to help us with our language in our revitalization efforts in part or principally because um, she's explained this to me uh, in uh, Yuchi language and um, I don't have all the story but she had some kind of eye problems when she was a kid and um, therefore she, could, she didn't go to school so she was, she was out of the system and stayed at home and was around uh, the elders and, and learned to speak. But even at that, um, you know, it's been years that we've tried to interact with her because we knew she could talk, or we pretty sure she could, but it's hard to, it's hard to calibrate because when the language hasn't been used for, say, half a century, you know, is it still there? How rusty is it? You know, some folk do lose it, lose their access to it. Um, and then, um, unfortunately, uh, she had a stroke. And uh, after that, she kind of changed her thinking. And that, so, you know, she's got her challenges. She gets frustrated. Gala adizadi ta neke indishate na adizate. The things I want to say, I can't say, she often says in a beautiful uh, musical uh, expression uh, of our language. And um, so that's how close we are. So the challenge, just to, to reference briefly the um, uh, process of bringing back our language, um, the challenge is to work with our elders in the community while we still have them. That's, I think, the most critical issue. And um, unfortunately, to effectively do that takes funding dollars. It takes staff. It's, you're really, in our experience, you're really not going to grow very many new fluent speakers just on a voluntary basis, you know, a few hours a week. Um, I mean, you may get someone who's extremely uh, overzealous, overcommitted, and you know has the kind of acuity with the language, you know, to kind of get there. But but that's very rare. Uh, there are a few, you know, virtuoso types around in a few communities who really have done the work on their own. But uh, ultimately, the goal, the kind of the the, the the process, is that we need to get the language to the kids coming up, so that the the parallelism. Under the boarding school system, the kids were the target in blocking the language and stopping the transmission of culture. And now today, 
ultimately the kids are the target once again to bring back our language and it's it's very challenging because the parents don't speak they're not going to hear the language in the home so you know how do you how do you work on those issues and um, you know for really um, I don't know from speaking from a very small community perspective you know really well healed um, programs tribes with funds you know can have an immersion school can uh, you know work at it in terms of whole cohorts to help move things forward um, <clears throat> but most of us the, the great majority of languages are actually small communities with now with handfuls of speakers and so we really don't have probably even the cultural resources to develop curricula to develop uh, materials at the different uh, age levels in in history and mathematics and um, social sciences um, you know, that's a major investment I um, I don't know what the real current numbers are but uh, the last thing I heard was somewhere close to seven million that the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma was putting in annually into their immersion language program and that's just for 10 kids per cohort you know so uh, it's an enormous investment um, and that's part of our challenge is literally uh, the economic challenge and that is to say um, the educational system and particularly the boarding school system was designed principally to break the transmission of tradition on the one hand but the the intended positive impact uh, was um, to bring people into the the economic system into the capitalistic system to prepare these kids to at least be well maybe laborers um, you know come in at some some low level of, of economic function um, and um, the impact of that was that uh, I would say billions of dollars were spent on this enormous far-reaching system over generations all over Indian country to you know implement this system so that um, I'm not sure how much time we have uh, so that uh, and the session ends at uh, seven so seven just leave some time for questions okay um, so when we talk about ways forward and the issue of reparation I would say that ultimately um, the economic consequence should match the investment in destroying our languages uh, and the shame that is kind of hidden but also really evident in our communities um, as expressed in rates of alcoholism and suicide rates I was just at a conference with a horrible suicide um, this week um, but um, the consequence of um, 
particularly the boarding school system as the main instrumentality of that assault, uh, the consequence was uh, not only an enormous impact on the um, self-understanding, on the um, self-confidence of our peoples and communities, but there's also a financial, there's an economic measure that goes with that. So that when we talk about the, the billions of dollars that were spent destroying our languages right now, uh, it's okay to speak your language. You know, it's the perfect colonial uh, paradigm. It's like, you know, now that we have nobody left who's in good enough health to really run a class, it's okay to speak your language. Uh, kind of, a, you know, and it's, so it's, I don't know if it's the, you know, colonial nostalgia or what it is, but um, we, uh, our communities have permission but no chasso. So the investment that went into uh, destroying our languages and the shame that's associated with it, that is to say, the message has always been, the, the kind of cultural injunction has been that, um, you know, our indigenous cultures are inherently weak. They're incapable of standing up to the superior uh, language expression and religious traditions of European peoples and therefore somehow they've imploded because we're um, culturally inept and uh, you know too feeble to, to meet the whereas of course in reality the, the reason I'm pointing to the numbers the, the dollar figures um, is precisely because to, to get at the, the level of enormous investment, generation after generation after generation. Um, so I'm just going to make a couple of, uh, just touch base on a couple other points. Um, how is it possible that uh, a crisis of this enormity is pretty much off the off the uh, radar? The, the visibility of this issue, I, I think, is minimal. Um, I'm suggesting some of it, um, that there's a great deal of shame. And in some sense, I, 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 I do think that uh, there's an aspect um, where, you know, uh, if people were, you know, if we could say that, you know, the, the library in Alexandria is on fire, there's stuff that's burning up that we'll never know again, that we'll never have access to again. There's stuff that's collected wisdom from cultures and traditions. Um, then everyone would be alarmed. Um, you know, their physical um, property, you know, whereas in our communities, you know, our, our traditions are embodied in our elders. It's in their minds, it's in their hearts, it's in their tongues, it's in their expressions, their hands. Um, and it's um, ultimately, um, it's, it's, it's just a quiet implosion. It's, I think it's not an explosion. It's not a, you know, it's not great flames with smoke billowing into the sky. 
It's the absence of the voices. It's the disappearance of those voices that's at issue. And, you know, it's just, um, it's more like a, um, you know, a high tide or a, um, maybe a tidal wave coming in and wiping out that library. And so, you know, we call our elders sometimes, uh, it's kind of an awkward phrase, but sometimes we, we say there are, you know, our walking encyclopedias, our living dictionaries, but they really are in our language. I mean, we don't have resources. If you want to know how to say something, you got to go ask somebody. Um, you know, we don't, there's, there's not like books on tape or, you know, and that's true with the majority of our indigenous languages. Um, so just one other point. Honestly, um, the, the whole uh, process of uh, colonial uh, rationalizations that began from day one in this place, um, integrating indigenous cultures and peoples, their systems of governance, their religious traditions, it's still with us. And um, at some real level, uh, I think such things as, you know, the whole enormous <laughs> uh, mascot uh, enterprise, that's really what it's about. I don't have time to go into it this moment, but that's literally what it's about, is training a new generation to participate in the most uh, fundamental aspects of the founding mythology of the formal um, social and uh, governmental uh, establishment in this country, and that is, if it's Indian, it's ours. If it's Indian, we got a right to it. I mean, there's nothing more basic than that. So that then must extend not just to the land, to the property, timber, water rights, what have you, but ultimately it's, it's the very identity that we have a right to. Um, and who can possibly appreciate the struggles and the real world struggles and challenges of our indigenous communities when you can go see, you know, those wild Indians on the football field, you know, every weekend or, you know, of course it's kids are really getting active in sports now with the same kind of mascot antics going on. Um, <clears throat> just a couple of more things. Um, the reason that I'm saying that reparations are in order and the reason that I want to call attention to it in terms particularly of the churches also uh, of uh, governmental structures as far as I can tell now uh, uh, NARV has done you know pretty good legal spade work trying to figure out an angle on the reparations bit. It's really, really difficult. Not a lot of uh, positive prospects on uh, legal claims based on individual, um, individual kids who were abused at boarding school and whether um, sexually, physically, psychologically. Um, and at some level, I think it's hard to mount the support even from within our indigenous communities. I mean, I have to say that my hat's off to, excuse me, 
I, I really uh, respect uh, First Nations people north of this border up here, um, you know, who have been able to pursue these abuses and concerns and parlay them into uh, actual um, formal legal processes. And um, what we learned, I was at the uh, uh, first uh, gathering for the um, boarding school healing project um, right in downtown, right in Manhattan, right in the heart of the finance district, which was a really weird place to be talking about colonization issues. It really was. Um, but um, we invited down some of the um, lead workers in administering uh, the processes in the, on the Canadian side. And um, one of the things that we, we heard testimony about was uh, that they had lost elders uh, in this process. So uh, essentially it was a very tough one-two punch. The, uh, the elders were asked to talk about what happened uh, enormous level of sexual abuse, ugly things that happened that had been stuffed down for decades. And now you dredge all this up and in order to participate in the process. Um, so that gets you into all the, the self-worth and all of these issues and, and your involvement somehow and you know all of that uh, entanglement. And then you turn around, the next thing you do, you get a big per cap check in the mail. And uh, I don't know the hard numbers, but uh, the report was that they did lose quite a few elders to drinking and uh, self-abuse um, following that, that pattern. So uh, what I'm proposing is, of course, reparations um, are expected to be commensurate um, with the issue that's being addressed um, and but they should also be appropriate to the harm that's been caused so the principal impact I would say of the boarding school system I would say the key measure is the assault on the languages and in particular the assault on the languages although carried out against individual little kids who were separated and dispersed across different boarding school systems, um, like at Shalako, you know, our elders, my, my father went there, our elders today went there, but they were like in different dorms, they weren't with other Yuchi kids, you know, I mean, so you re it really was hard to keep your language. Um, even though it was carried out against individuals, the impact was on the community as a whole. That language community no longer had that next generation carry on those, those songs, those stories. They didn't have that knowledge because they were pushed out of the system through this boarding school experience. So what I'm saying is I think the appropriate uh, reparations process would be for uh, significant funding to go to the communities. That is to say, as I, as I was commenting at the um, 
beginning of my talk, I was trying to identify uh, the language crisis as the biggest issue in Indian country, the most critical issue, the most significant issue. Um, and in trying to explain uh, why I think that, um, I was suggesting that, you know, during all of the ugliness and the, the genocides and the assault on religious leaders and uh, the uh, incarcerations and et cetera, et cetera, people still knew who they were. They still spoke their language and they could address the ancestors, they could address the elders, they could conduct themselves in an appropriate way given the, the assaults that they were be, being confronted with. And this is the point of reparations focused on language. It will empower our communities to remember who we are and to continue to be uh, a community that fulfills uh, our understanding of our place in the world. And, um, so rather than so much a focus on individuals, you know, the statute of limitations has run out. I mean, there's lots of legal barriers. But um, at some real level, we know what happened. We don't know all the details. I think a full healing process, yes, would involve some truth-telling, would involve some, uh, I think, more uh, intense level of acknowledgement, apology, uh, these types of things that have begun to be hinted at, but um, but uh, ultimately the principal impact of the boarding schools was really to uh, crush down the uh, strength of our traditional ways, our ways of understanding the world, of living in the world. And by restoring our languages, this would allow us um, to carry those things forth and, and to revitalize our own uh, self-understandings rather than getting caught in the quagmire of individual-based uh, uh, reparations. Um, anyway, that's uh, a few comments uh, on the issue. There's different pieces that uh, we could open up, but I wanted to at least um, lay out a few broad brush, big picture pieces to kind of start the conversation. If I could ask the, um, the first question, um, it rang bells with me because after college I went to the Himalayas in Nepal and taught in a Jesuit boarding school. And I'm thinking of the boarding schools in India, the boarding schools in Asia, the Jesuit reductions in, in the Andes and Peru and so on. Would you distinguish it all, and I'm not saying you know, good and bad, but um, the government's plan of stripping the native cultures of their identity and religious efforts to Christianize people. So 
distinguish that, or do you think, practically speaking, it doesn't actually make any difference? Well, uh, I didn't go too much into the, the history of, of Grant's peace policy, but, you know, in the um, process of developing uh, the BIA, the eventual boarding school system, there was a, a, a rather uh, <laughs> a extraordinary level of uh, cooperative work between uh, the churches so that the um, uh, reservations were actually divvied up because there, it was viewed and understood that you know, there was so much corruption in the, uh, s the government system to deliver to uh, these reservation communities uh, that, you know, one of the big pushes was, well, we need churches to run these programs. We need Christian folk. And so uh, the, the uh, reservation areas were literally divvied up between the churches. So, the, so um, and at the same time, the churches were uh, informing the government program in terms of the religious uh, implications of the, the schools. So, so the, the boarding schools were basically run more like a military camp in terms of, uh, you know, uniform, discipline, you know, the dorm settings, et cetera. But, but they were, uh, in terms of the cultural in impact, you know, it was stripping the kids of their, um, their names, you know, their traditional clothing, anything that would seem to express their uh, original identity. So I, uh, yeah, I think the, the overlap was quite incredible, particularly in, in this. I'm greeting you with the language of my mother in, in the Philippines. Um, I, I totally agree that um, the loss of language inhibits a people from practicing the fullness of their rich ceremonial life. In the same way, the loss of rituals where language is practiced in context in relation to ancestors inhibits a people from practicing their you know, revitalizing their language. You shared with us the, the struggles with regards to your language, can you say a little, a little bit about the struggles in relation to your ceremonial life in the course of colonization? Uh, well, just a quick comment. Uh, there is uh, various levels of how that struggle is, um, ex you know, is manifested, but at some basic level, the assault on the environment uh, is a key aspect of it. So in our traditions, for example, we have a, a buffalo dance as part of our ceremonial tradition. It's, it's um, a dance in which we reestablish our relationship with, with this, these important uh, partners. Um, in academic discourse, these dances are often referred to as social dances. Um, which gets to the issue of the academy has not been very good at taking seriously our languages uh, in the same way that the academy 
you know, pays attention to um, Hebrew language or, um, you know, in Islamic studies, you know, you, there's no question that you're going through, through the language. Um, but people can publish on uh, indigenous religions uh, seemingly, you know, um, it's seldom expected for the you know, knowledgeable experts to actually be able to <laughs> speak to the elders in, in, their, in their language. So that um, the impact is that um, in our communities, we had that dance and we have, you know, academics come around referring to this as social dances. You know, this is another uh, kind of uh, way of eroding our understanding of our ceremonial ways, right? Um, but our elders, when we started going around and working on the language, no one could remember the, kind of embarrassing to say, nobody could remember the word for buffalo. I mean, the buffalo were physically eradicated, you know, in the mid-1800s in Oklahoma. I mean, you know, this was, you know, four generations back, and no one had seen them. We have the dance, but that word is not in the dance. The dance, the song, you know, has, has uh, in our, it's in our singing style, but that actual word for buffalo isn't, isn't used. In, so... Uh, so I'm just saying the assault on the physical environment and, and people being displaced, um, in our case, we were very um, fortunate, I guess, uh, with you know, a 2,000-kilometer displacement, um, we still could find our main ceremonial plants, the medicines for our ceremonies, can be found. They're, they're, it's a chore, but it can be done. And so, you know, this was this was a key piece for us. In other words, if we had moved, we'd been moved 2,000 kilometers north, it would have been a, you know, I, I, the, the um, devastation. I don't know what that could have meant. It's, it's, I don't necessarily, I don't know how to think about it. I don't necessarily want to think about it. But, but one of the issues is our elders today um, have no um, preparation traditionally to um, inform them what to do if you're the last speaker of your language, what to do if you're the last ceremonial, you know, if you know about this ceremony or you're the leader of that ceremony. There's no, it's, you know, traditionally it wasn't envisioned that the young ones wouldn't be picking up the process in a, in a natural, organic way. Um, so that uh, part of the reason that I'm talking about the funding aspect as well is that uh, the millions of dollars that went into destroying our languages and dragging them down to the level we're at now uh, you know, we had lots of help getting into trouble. We need lots of help getting out of trouble. Um, and to get, once the natural progression is broken, in order to get the languages going again, that is to say, there's no easy way to overcome the breaking of the chain. I mean, it's, 
there's just no easy way to do it. So um, that's where I'm saying we at least need enough dollars invested so that we can have effective programs for now. Um, and then at some point, the, the goal is to get the language back into the homes, back into the family setting where it's been ripped out of through the boarding school system. Anyway, I don't know if that was very helpful. see there as being an ethical dilemma between uh, helping using one's like academic expertise to assist with the efforts of keeping a language uh, from dying while studying those people? Well, it's a very good question, uh, uh, an important question. Well, I will say this. There are academic endeavors that are much more colonial in expression relative to indigenous communities. I don't know if I should name names, uh, but um, the linguistic project seems less inherently, shall we say, deductive. It's not necessarily so. However, the main rub is the majority of our communities as I say, are down to World War, World War II generation folk who are in the last years of their lives. Um, the uh, linguist or anthropologist who comes to work with them, uh, it's very difficult for the elders to say no to these people. They have been made fun of their entire lives. They were shaped as kids coming up. They're the last speakers. People in their own community were giving them the business, okay? Um, and then suddenly to have someone from the, you know, that big museum or from Harvard University to come and sit with us, oh, it's like colonial candy, and they will not turn that down. Now they're respected. Now finally what they know matters, you know? So it's, it's, it becomes a challenge so that ultimately it's not about getting the information in a book, on a shelf, on a recording. It's about getting it to the young people in the community so the language will live. So we're working on principally face-to-face, breath-to-breath revitalization. That's what matters. The reality is it's very difficult to even access most of the academic work in and of itself. Uh, the questions that matter in the academy aren't really very, have you, I don't, you may be a linguist, I don't know. But, you know, for the average person to try to read this stuff, I mean, I have a PhD, I can probably figure some of it out, but our community members, you know, it's just, it's, it is an, another language for them. And the, the issue, the rub, isn't per se the project itself. It's the conflict over time with the elders at a critical time. What is the most important um, use of their time? The most valuable uh, resource in the community is the knowledge of the elders and their time. Um, so how's that going to get 
divvied up. And we had a, a great <laughs> showdown in our community where a linguist was wanting permission from the Uchi organized body to go and work on uh, work with elders on developing a dictionary. And uh, the linguist was saying, oh, well, you know, I want Uchi kids to have this dictionary on their shelves 100 years from now. And then I got up and said, you know, I've got a big fat French Cassells. Moi, je ne parle pas bien français, n'est-ce pas? You know, my French is lousy, but I've got all the words somewhere on my shelf. Um, this is not a critical piece in growing new speak. I mean, if we had the resources, there's nothing wrong with it. It could be of benefit, but in terms of the competition for the elders' time, uh, when we're counting, I don't know, years, we hope. We pray all of our elders live to be 100. Um, but the, uh, my response was, you know, I want Uchi kids to be speaking the language 100 years from now. And to do that fully and appropriately, you know, we need the time of the elders. And of course, I lost that battle. And, and our very limited time of the elders was divvied up, you know, with this big project that was in the kind, I don't know what to call it, in the cultural economics of the kind of crisis time that we were in, it wasn't the best choice, but nobody can turn down the cultural candy. And it didn't matter what I said about it. You know, people were gonna do it. And the question is still coming. And that was, I mean, I don't know the actual, I'm not very good with calendar stuff, but you know, that could be uh, 16 years ago. And people in the community still ask me, well, where is that dictionary, you know? I mean, you, you know how the process goes. I mean, it's not a surprise to me, but, you know, the, the elders who invested their time and, you know, they're gone now, and uh, most of them. And their families ask, well, where's that piece, you know? And, you know, um, we've distributed, I suppose, thousands of little tutorial tapes in Yuchi language around the Yuchi community and they're in somebody's garage, you know, they're around, but it's not the most important process. I don't know how much to, to harp on this, but I'll just make one more quick point about it. Um, just to kind of point out the challenge, uh, there was a linguist, James Crawford, who worked in the Yuchi community in the early 70s. Uh, was starting to work. He wanted to work on a practical grammar for the Yuchi community, but of course he's starting with, with the shoebox, you know, approach. So he has, and we went to the uh, American Philosophical Society, took an elder, myself, another staff member, and of course the, the stuff couldn't be copied. So we had to use natural light and photograph these notes. Well, there were thousands of slip notes. And much of it was repetitive because of the nature of the process. And the bulk of it was simple, obvious things that we already knew. But we're driven by, what if there's some real, you know, we don't know what he got from those. He was working, you know, 30 years before. And, you know, something that might...
doors opened, we were there until they closed at like five. It was just kind of a pretty limited time frame. And we did everything we could to, you know, get that material. But even when we did, unfortunately, of course, there was a bottleneck because nobody could read the, the writing system except myself and then um, we worked with. Um, so in the end, we ended up just shooting as much stuff as we could, running some things past the elder. But then we just had it all in a digital format. And then we had to pay someone to print all that stuff out. You know, so we had a you know, part-time staff to go and print all that out. And then we still had to drag it back out and run it past the elders because I'm not leaving anything that's on these slips of paper. If our elders can't recognize it or identify it, I don't know what to do with it. You know, maybe it's accurate, maybe it's not. And of course, it turned out that there was a whole section. I doubt if it was something that happened um, with the, the dear old linguist who was working on this stuff on his shift, but there was Yuki language sandwiched in, <laughs> in the, with the, the Yuchi language. And there were all these words for cactus and stuff. I thought, wow, that is cool. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, and, uh, so all that to say, for a small community struggling, do you really want to just to literally try to access it is an enormous investment of time and resources, the elders' time, and you know. But we're we're driven by mm. there might be some nuggets, there could be some good stuff. We don't know. We just literally don't know. Uh, I think there were eighty thousand notes, and of course we only got a percentage in an entire week of the time of our elders and staff, and the cost of the renting the van and the travel and the, you know staying, and, and we just got so little out of it in terms of benefit to understanding the language and you know, spurring the elders to remember things that maybe they haven't heard in 50 years. Uh, Richard, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the Yuchi Language Project, about what you do with the kids and the elders and what happens when they come together. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, what we try to do with the Yuchi Language Project is really do as I'm saying, face-to-face um, -face learning of the language as much as we can. Uh, we try to do breath-to-breath. But of course, the, the big challenge, the practical issue is when your uh, youngest speaker just turned 90, you know, you can't turn these little wonderful, uh, beautiful rats. Yes. You know, and these elders obviously can't manage the kids. So, you know, so you have to really kind of figure out ways to provide access for the young learners. Our principal method has been to have young adults who themselves are learners and then they kind of become the, the go-betweens from the knowledge of the elders and then carry the, the main burden of uh, getting the language to the kids. Um, but we have had uh, particularly at kind of a new level this, this last summer of working with our elders and kids and able to bring them together in a more uh, intentional and uh, kind of structured way. So the kids, and part of it has to do with the kids developing more language skills and having more to bring to, the, to that face-to-face. Uh, -face. So um, we really are not that invested in documenting, certainly not documentation for its own sake, but we are, but we do 
record things and we write some things down even though, but that's principally as a, you know, uh, the writing is a mnemonic to make sure we, we're saying it right and remind us how to say it, but the, but the, um, the recordings are intended to help learners to get the rhythm and flow. And, um, so that's, I don't know if that's too short of an answer, but that's kind of our, our, our main intention is, you know, to really, so right now all we're able to do funding wise is we have a modest after school program. So it's, you know, really a tough time of day. Kids have been in school all day and then you bring them in. And, and of course our approach is to try to do activities, games uh, that are fun to do, but do it all in the language. So we, we use immersion methodologies with the kids so that they're learning and picking it up uh, without necessarily realizing it or uh, without, you know, having class drill method and charts on the wall so much. Um, excuse the naivety of this question, but um, are there young adults that speak this language at all? Um, well, I, I didn't put it on my resume. <laughs> well, the most important piece is my daughter is the most fluent speaker mm. under the age of 90. Mm. Um, so she's part of my resume. We just brought a new young, uh, I mean, he's not as young, he's late 20s now, but uh, within the less than two years. He's gone from zero to 45, 50 miles an hour, so to speak, in terms of his language, knowledge, and acquisition, so that um, actually what we've been best at is getting the language to young adults. What we did for a number of years was target parent age community members so they can, so it was kind of a, we didn't have the luxury of you know, developing master teachers of the language, step one, then go teach the kids. It was all happening at the same time. So, and then the, the kind of the, the main kind of unstated in terms of, you know, formally, but our, our real plan was to, to hire young adults, young uh, parents who could then use the language with their kids at home. So they're getting not just the kind of exposure at the language program, daily after school and through the summer, but, you know, now that their parents are becoming competent, pretty, pretty fluent in the language, and then they can reinforce it and carry it forward on the home front. Um, that's awesome, because my, my follow-up question is, um, what does the art scene look like, and is there any bleed through of uh, U2 language and things like, and excuse me if this just doesn't work or something, but uh, in poetry or hip hop or something that is emerging as a sort of a countercultural thing, does that happen? How does it well, happen if it does? And it's interesting you asked this question. We were running the workshop in Alaska in the village, then on our way back, um, we were there for the big convention uh, in Anchorage uh, for the Alaska Native Federation. And there was a 
gathering, they were telling stories, and our young intern was just ready to get up. He was so inspired, he was going to get up and, you know, render something. I don't know if it was what he was going to say. He was going to, I don't know if he was just going to tell a story or he was going to do something in the language. And the time kind of ran out. So we're almost there. <laughs> we're, we're on our way. But what we're, the main focus in our case, we want the, the, the young people to own the language and to go new directions with it, yes. But our initial thrust is to restore the language in the ceremonial life of the community, in, in the church uh, that we have, you know, historic Yuchi language church. Um, and then, and maybe just to respond to the initial question about um, overlap of the churches, you know, it's a, it's a, with the uh, colonial project, it's always so confusing. And, and uh, the Yuchi Methodist Church uh, was begun, you know, a little over a century ago, uh, involved some of my family members. My grandmother was a picket. And so they have a picket chapel, Methodist Church. But um, the United Methodist Church actually developed a whole conference, the Oklahoma Indian Missionary Conference, which was a language conference. They had all these churches, over 100 churches, uh, because they held services, they prayed, they sang songs in their language. And so they had this, this separate conference specifically for that. At the same time, uh, despite the fact that, uh, I guess you could say the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, came to these shores, um, I mean, it's almost three centuries ago, his intended purpose was to missionize the Native American peoples. Um, didn't really happen, but now after almost three centuries, we've still never had an, an identifiable Native American bishop in the United Methodist Church. So, you know, we've got a language conference, but, you know, we're, you're not in the decision-making realms, you know, or you're limited. I should overstate it. Um, my name is Mong Neil, and <coughs> I'm from Bangladesh, and I work for indigenous language revival in the indigenous communities here, um, living near the border of Myanmar. And this is wonderful to hear your work. Um, so you also mentioned about after school um, and starting with the children. I think that that's uh, what I have seen in many communities around the world um, started emphasizing more. So my question is, uh, what are your experiences or uh, in your uh, opportunities you have looked at why not have the language also bring it into part of their school uh, and it can start early uh, pre-k kindergarten uh, and using the community cultural resources uh, the rhymes there are oral stories uh, ancestral wisdom proverbs and all of those can be uh, integrated in a comprehensive program so that they are, the children are more exposed to um, not only just uh, the pronunciation of the word, how to 
in, in terms of developing the vocabulary and also seeing that social status of the language is elevated, um, both inside the classroom yes. and outside the yes. classroom. So I um, would like to hear a bit more about your experiences uh, in Oklahoma in terms of how you had, um, had the opportunities working with the schools and also if uh, the challenges that you had. Well, uh, very insightful uh, question. I appreciate uh, the work that you're, you all are doing there. Uh, and I think I really agree with you. You've raised the issue of the prestige of the language. So our languages have been denigrated for, you know, how far back can we, you know, beyond the memory of anyone living today. And uh, so where do we do things? Uh, in the movie theater in Zapopa, Oklahoma, you know, they have uh, little preview clips, mostly for businesses and things, as people are waiting for the movie to start. Well, we, we paid for a, an ad spot with our featuring our Yuchi kids and the elders, you know, they're up there on the big screen. You know, we uh, have paid for a, a Yuchi language program. Now those little bits aren't going to produce any significant knowledge of the language, I don't think, but it's a, but it is about elevating the prestige of the language, and that's what I'm saying. At a community level, beyond the issue of funding, the most critical issue is overcoming the kind of colonial inertia that's been, you know, knocking us down for these many generations. So I think that is a critical piece. I think the schools can be an effective place. Uh, here in the, uh, I mean, I think, you know, and the biggest picture, the schools are essentially a program to inculcate people into the system. So if you want to get, if, if th there is a benefit if you can do an immersion school and take over the institution structure and use that daily systematic um, exposure to you know, get language to kids, um, it, it may be worth doing. Almost all of our communities, language communities in the U.S., don't have that capacity to pull that off. Uh, it's also fraught with problems and issues. Uh, in the U.S. system, there are all these um, educational requirements and, and outcomes. And so what happens, I, I know it's one of the challenges for the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, they have now completed their, um, you know, immersion program from K-3 all the way through the eighth grade, which was their target. So they, they, each year they would develop new material, bring in a new class behind them, develop the, the curriculum for the next year. But, you know, the question can also become, well, we're using our language, but we're teaching a white curriculum. Yes. We're using our language, but it's a colonial paradigm that we're trying to address using our language. So then you get it, you know, I'm just saying, there are pitfalls and there are real challenges. If our languages are spiritual, if our languages really reflect our view of the world, what are the trade-offs in using our language to reflect another worldview? You see what I'm saying? So there's, there are uh, challenges with it. Um, and then just, there, there are various pitfalls. 
in general, I'll get, I'll give you this. I, I know our time's getting away. In general, in our community, we wouldn't strictly be opposed to having a program, but I really, you'd have to have a really smart staff leading the uh, implementation of the program. If you're able to get full immersion, six, eight hours a day, yeah, that's going to be the real deal. That's going to make a real difference. You're going to start seeing fluency development. But the, the, it's really hard to uh, effectively implement. I mean, there's there's so many distractions. And, uh, you know, there, there, uh, people who are outside the language are so, it's so easy to be satisfied with technological fixes. This is a big, and I think it's really a misdirection for most of our communities. If you have the resource, if you can add the technology piece, you know, the language on the, you don't have a phone, the language on the, you know, the little handheld device, uh, the language uh, on the internet. I don't know if there's anything wrong with it. But look, to some extent, it depends on the size of the, com the indigenous community. If you're in the millions, that this is appropriate things to be doing. Uh, but when you're in the uh, hundreds, and when your actual speaker population is less than 1% of the total indigenous community, you know, it's um, it's a real challenge. So um, we are not specifically going. You know, if we had the big ticket and resources, financial resources, they would have to try to figure out is it worth the cultural investment. Um, that is to say, you know, people are seduced. I think with technological fixes that I think are in general not providing knowledge of living language in the way that you're getting from learning. In general, people are too easily satisfied with cans, colors, animals, and numbers. You know, you can just kind of do these little, you know, I mean, I just uh, visited a, a program um, at a conference in uh, New Mexico, you know, and there, you know, you could see their evaluation chart and the things they're evaluating, you know, are easy to score, but I'm not sure it's very relevant to developing real living language competency. But anyway, um, that's, I don't know if that's helpful, but like I say, if you can do it, it would be great. The, my, in, the, in the biggest picture, my concern is, um, you know, if you, if you look at some of the UN work um, where there's you know, investment in developing curriculum materials to try to, like as you say, elevate the prestige of the language. You know, that's okay for, you know, I don't know, Aymara language community, which is, what is it, four million speakers or something. You know, the kids aren't speaking in the cities much anymore. You know, there are real issues, but, you know, and that's great. But at a, given the size of most of our communities, our emphasis is on trying to grow new speakers who can revitalize the language as quickly as we can get it back into the home in a more full and effective way. I don't know if that's helpful, but we can talk yeah, about yeah. that. Thank you. So I think our time, our formal time is up. Um, I think uh, Dr. Grounds can stay around a little bit longer. Before we close officially, 
Professor Browdy has a gift to This give is a head. small gift. It's actually uh, from the Harvard University Native American program. It's a travel mug. We know that you're traveling a lot. <laughs> and it has the Harvard seal on the Turtle Island, oh. which is where we know that we live. So okay. we thank you so much. Okay. Thank you.